G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Continuing through this hour, we'll be talking finance with our finance guy, financial advisor, Gavin Martin from Cornerstone Wealth. He's got some offices in Melbourne and in Sydney. We're going to talk all things finance. Stay with us. We'll come up and talk with Gavin in just a few moments. Day or night, Vision Christian Woman Magazine has been serving Australian women for close to 60 years. And now you can read and print each issue free. That's right, free. Simply grab your copy from Word Bookstores or jump online at Chris. ChristianWomanMag.com for a load of great articles on faith, hope, parenting and more. Let Australia's number one magazine for women inspire you. Christian Woman, now available free in-store or on your iPad. See ChristianWomanMag.com. Station sponsor. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020. It's Neil with you and great to be able to welcome back to 2020 Gavin Martin. Hello Gavin, welcome back. G'day Neil, great to be with you. Gavin, always love talking financial issues with you and we are going to be taking some calls this hour and uh, we'll take calls on all sorts of different financial issues. But one uh, thought that we had was uh, if you've paid off your car, uh, what would you do with the surplus cash that you used to put towards your car repayments? Uh, We'll talk about some wisdom as to how to allocate that cash. And, of course, we're inviting listeners to call in today on one 800 Perhaps you can tell us what you do uh, with your repayments after you've paid off your car. Maybe you squander it frivolously on all sorts of uh, unnecessary things, or maybe you've got a little investment strategy. So you can call us one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six, and we're taking calls on all sorts of financial questions. But uh, let's tackle some big picture stuff first, Gavin. Uh, the Reserve Bank came out with its minutes. Uh, from its uh, board meeting earlier this month. And there's some interesting things there. They always tackle the economic conditions around the world and they talk about Australia's economic conditions. Uh, You've picked up a a few little things that are not always in the minutes of the Reserve Bank. uh, What did you pick up from the latest uh, minutes? Yes, the core message was that uh, globally things are are tracking along okay and therefore... um, the interest rates are able to be remaining as they are, so keeping them at the 2.5% um, rate. Uh, but there were a few messages there. One thing that I were concerned about is the, the rise in house prices, particularly in New South Wales, they mentioned. And um, if interest rates are low, it's good because it helps um, people go out and build new houses, and that's actually good for uh, the economy. But they were concerned about... Um, you know, too much heat in the existing dwellings market, um, which can also be an effect of low interest rates. And so they were mentioned for the for the first time whether they might introduce some other strategies other than changing the interest rate to try and uh, to deal with that issue of overinflated um, 
segments of the market. And in particular, they're talking about New South Wales uh, residential property market. Okay, this is where it gets interesting because this is a little more complicated if they're using other means other than the interest rates to control those uh, types of conditions. What did you pick up in the minutes? Yeah, they called it uh, macro prudential tools. And I guess that's a, a, a sort of a buzzword for uh, some strategies that other countries, including uh, the UK and uh, New Zealand, have used uh, to try to tackle this particular issue. Uh, so there are, uh, New Zealand have outlined there's four main um, mechanisms or macro potential tools that they've got. Uh, but one of the key ones is that's quite easy to understand is the loan to value ratio. So the, the government could actually um, require. Uh, that um, you have a certain amount of deposit uh, when you go and buy a home, for example. So uh, they're making sure that the loan-to-value ratio is of a certain level. And and the example would be, say, for example, you buy a home of $500,000. They could require it that you have a 20% deposit. Um, So if you're looking at a $500,000 property, 20% of that is uh, $100,000. If you add then on top of that stamp duty, depending on which state you're in, it might be $120,000 that you need before you can actually go out and buy that home. Now, that's going to take a bit of heat out of the market because you can't borrow as much um, as uh, you were previously. Um, and the, the government's not actually um, suggesting, or the RBA is not actually saying that they're going to do this, but they're saying that they might think about doing Uh, putting some of these mechanisms in place. A lot of banks do seem to have some of those sorts of conditions on home loans uh, where where they require a certain uh, level of deposit. Uh, but what you're saying is that not that's not necessarily been set in stone, but the, the but the government could actually legislate to have that set in stone if the uh, if the Reserve Bank uh, leaned that way. Yes, exactly. The the structure that banks work under at the moment is that um, they would prefer to have at least a 20% deposit or even more because that means that their, um, their lending book is more secure. Uh, there's less risk involved with it. But if, for example, um, somebody wants to buy a home with only a 10% deposit, they, the banks often still allow it. But uh, to mitigate the risk of default, uh, they require that the purchaser have mortgage insurance. Um, so rather than and so basically they're transferring some of the risk over to the, in, the mortgage insurer, um, whereas I guess this approach is more of a legislative approach to saying, no, you can't do that at all. Even if you're taking out mortgage insurance, uh, you're not able to do it, and therefore it takes a little bit of a heat out of the market. Coming back to uh, those other issues in the Reserve Bank's minutes, uh, where they give a an, you know, rundown of what's happening internationally and then they look at the Australian economy, uh, they are talking about things looking pretty stable at the moment and building on those things. Uh, when you mention house prices uh, soaring in states like New South Wales, is that because you think of uh, you know a whole lot of money coming in from China, an international investment boom that's going on, and how would that affect someone who was just trying to get into the housing market here in Australia? They're big questions, aren't they? Yes, there is a flow of um, money from China. I read some articles the other day, uh, multiple billion dollars of, of, of money coming in. Uh, I look at our local area as well, and I see the you know, significantly higher prices being paid. And, um, uh, yeah, there, there's speculation that it's all coming from, uh, the money's coming from China. Um, so that is a, a big um, influence on um, prices. Uh, but I think then people see the rise in prices and get on board. It's the whole bubble effect where 
uh, you don't want to miss out on the rising markets and so people then leverage up higher than what they potentially uh, should. Uh, there is potentially, um, uh, economists are thinking that the, the next interest rate move, whilst the RBA is saying that they're stable right now, interest rates are stable and looking like staying the same unless there's other changes, um, some economists are thinking that there could actually be one further decrease in rates because if the federal government um, has a tough budget and cuts back significantly, uh, then there might need to be some further stimulus there to, to um, keep the economy going. So for first home buyers, uh, Gavin, uh, you know, I, we ask this question sort of regularly. Uh, is it a good time to uh, be a first home buyer in the market uh, and and get on board? Because if there is, you know, the potential for prices to continue to rise, does that mean now's the time to move? Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, yes, it, it again gets down to your personal circumstances. So ensuring that. Uh, you have sufficient deposit, ideally 20% plus the stamp duty and legal fees that you've got available, um, that it's not going to put any undue uh, pressure on your uh, family situation because the last thing you want to do is uh, finances to cause uh, undue stress and, um, and, and family issues. Um, and if it, if it makes sense in that you have uh, sufficient time to actually uh, live in the property so that you don't have to sell it in a short amount of time because that would then mean that uh, you could potentially take a loss on it if markets do move. Okay, there might be questions our listeners might have. Uh, and Gavin Martin, a financial advisor, and while the advice that we talk about uh, is general in nature and if you do have uh, specific circumstances, uh, you should uh, talk to your own personal financial advisor to take those uh, specific circumstances into account. But uh, if you've got a question uh, about uh, home buying, about the economy, uh, you can feel free to call. The talkback lines are open, one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. If you have a question for uh, Gavin Martin, one 870 Let's also introduce another dimension to our discussion today, Gavin. We're talking a little bit about uh, what happens when you've paid off your car. Uh, what do you do with the surplus cash? Uh, when you used to put that towards your car repayments, what do you now do with it? And there might be listeners who can contribute to our conversation on this. Tell us what you have done in the past. When you've paid off your car, what have you done with that spare cash? one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six is our number. You can contribute to our conversation. If we were picking up on that particular topic, Gavin, uh, paying off the car, it's a real relief when you've finally paid off that car loan. Uh, maybe you feel like you're you know, a little bit buoyant and a little extra skip in your step because you've got a few extra dollars. Yes, yeah, certainly. Whenever you pay off debt, whether it be a car loan or a credit card or, or even a family home, uh, it does relieve that pressure. There's that big burden that, that comes off your shoulders. So it's, it's interesting. Um, it, it does often free up some cash flow, whether um, whichever thing you are paying off, and uh, you've got to look at what you then do with that money. Well, we'll invite listeners to call and give us your impression of what you do. Perhaps you decide that that's going to go towards that long-anticipated holiday. Uh, tell us what you would do if you uh, got your car loan paid off, those extra repayments, what would you do with them? You're on 2020. It's Neil Johnson with you, our special guest this hour, Gavin Martin from Cornerstone Wealth. We're talking through all issues finance. Uh, Gavin, and we're talking about what happens when you've paid off your car. Well, the car is a huge expense uh, for a lot of families and families that have got two cars, even three cars. Uh, there's, a, there's a treadmill you're on with perhaps car payments. It is certainly some relief when you finally get to the end of one of those loans. 
It certainly is. It's it's a relief uh, um, that you can take off your shoulders. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting what people do uh, because a lot of people just default to the uh, next step on the process or the next thing on the uh, on on their um, uh, plan is to now I've paid off that loan. I'll go out and buy a new car and take out another loan because I can I can do that now. I've paid off that loan. Um, but there are other options for you. You might just choose to drive that car for a little bit longer and spend the surplus on uh, on a holiday or other uh, fun things like that. Or you might put the payments towards um, uh, further debt repayments, whether that be the mortgage or other uh, debt that you might have. Uh, or you might even think about um, saving the, the money that you're putting towards the car loan into a car saving account so that you can pay cash for it next time, or you might invest the surplus as well. So I'd be interested to see um, what people's views are on this. Interestingly, a little aside here, I was in a conversation just recently where somebody said the reason why the car industry in Australia has struggled so much is because people aren't buying new cars. Uh, If we all had a plan to be able to save towards and ultimately buy a new car, uh, it might have contributed to uh, some level of saving our motoring industry. But uh, but that's not necessarily the case. It's probably beyond saving now, but but that is is a, a valid point, isn't it? It is a valid point, um, but I think it would also then uh, often take longer for us to save up that deposit and, and therefore we'll be potentially buying less cars um, because we'll be driving the existing car that little bit longer. I think one of the real stimulus um, for the car industry is the whole concept of uh, leasing a car, uh, so not paying for it up front at all, but uh, borrowing all of the money that you use to pay for the car and then paying it off over time, whether that salary package through your uh, employment or, or whether it's just a private arrangement. But that was one of the key things that has boosted the car industry. But it doesn't always boost your own hip pocket. But there's some other issues too we want to tackle today, Gavin. Credit scores. There was some changes that came about, I think it must be just over a week ago now, where uh, our credit scores are being reported more often and more accurately uh, to financial uh, lenders, financial institutions. Yes, a significant change that occurred was that um, finance financial institutions needed to report um, if you defaulted on a, a debt repayment, if it was older than 60 days. And now they're reducing that significantly so that if you, I think you can be up to like five days overdue on your payment and it will, that will get reported and be included in your credit score. So it has uh, some large implications. Uh, a lot of the commentary around the change um, coming into into play is around uh, those people who are, are poorer are, are potentially going to be impacted more because uh, they might be defaulting more on them. So it's actually going to uh, be more challenging for those um, in difficult circumstances. And uh, But it's something to be aware of, that if you aren't paying your uh, debt repayments on time, that it could impact you. And if you, uh, I guess, do it consistently, it will impact your credit score. And then it can mean that you'll pay more in terms of the interest rate when you do go to borrow in the future. And, of course, there are these credit scores being kept on each one of us. When we do go to even, you know, we're talking about buying a new car or whether it's a home loan or whatever it might be, whatever loan you're applying for, this credit score counts as to whether a financial lender will actually lend you any money. Yeah, there are lots of things that go into the credit score and one of those includes you know, how many times you've applied for some form of debt or credit card. Um, 
and uh, the, and the other one is um, the other major one is how often you uh, are late on your repayments. Um, interestingly, it, it generally is confined in Australia. The results of the credit score are confined uh, to further lending, uh, whereas in the states, um, your credit score can have an impact on your job prospects because they'll say, "Well, what's your credit score?" and that can provide an indication to them of your. Uh, your situation, and then you may or may not get the job based on that credit score. So at least in Australia, we're not at that uh, level. Uh, but uh, with these shorter timeframes on reporting, that it can have more impact on your particular scenario. Is it something, though, you feel like we perhaps should uh, keep in the back of our mind uh, when it comes to credit scores, that we may well follow the US track and uh, credit scores could be something that everyone we have contact with will have access to and perhaps be even able to hold those things against us? Yes, I think it means that we should uh, pay more attention to it when we are late in our payments. Um, uh, Some people are concerned that um, simple mistakes can sit on your credit score for a long time. So I think a couple of people said, look, uh, my electricity company keeps on, or the post, postman keeps on posting my electricity bill to my neighbour, and my, my neighbour just returns it to sender, and then by the time I get the bill, um, I've paid it late, and then that would affect my credit score. So there are, there are little intricacies of, of how it works um, that could you know, negatively impact you in some uh, scenarios. But I think we we tend to follow the US, so I think there's going to be more and more emphasis put on it over time. You know, just going through the potential scenarios there, you could be off for a holiday for a couple of weeks and uh, your bills could arrive in the mail and you could be late on those and you'll end up with a little black mark on your name. Yeah, exactly. I guess they would look at the whole... Uh, your, your whole history, and that's the idea of it, that uh, if that was just you know, once off, it wouldn't be a significant impact. And if you paid it back you know, as soon as you got back, then I think it would um, have a uh, you know, minor impact. But if it was a consistent thing, that would uh, yeah, definitely play, um, play, have an impact. And Gavin, you'd be aware that you can, in fact, review your credit score. Uh, Those companies that uh, keep the scores, you can challenge those things that are on there and you can try and have those black marks cleared from your name. Is that something you advise people to do? Yes, I actually looked up my credit score a number of years ago, mine and my wife's, because uh, my wife lost her purse. And uh, and, um, one thing that you can do when you look at your credit score is to to check if... um, um, somebody has applied for credit cards under your name if they've got your, uh, your details. Uh, so it is good to check your credit score. I just tried to look at that. Vita is one of, of the main organisations that provides credit scores. I think uh, Dun & Bradstreet might be the other. Um, uh, but I just tried to get it uh, uh, before today's interview and it, and it looks like they're trying to you know, channel you, you down a, an annual fee to access them at the moment, um, whereas uh, I was able to access it for free um, uh, a couple of years ago when I did it. So I'm sure there would be a way of accessing it for free. It's just a matter of finding that mechanism. So check your credit score now because you'll be charged to do that eventually. So <laughs> yes. there's, there's something certainly to be aware of. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil with you on 2020. Our guest this hour is our financial advisor, our finance guy, as I like to refer to him, Gavin Martin from Cornerstone Wealth. Gavin, we've been talking about what happens when you've paid off your car loan. What do you do with that surplus cash flow that used to go into your car repayments? Now you've got a few extra spare dollars. What do you say to people 
uh, when you're uh, in a conversation with them, perhaps even in a professional sense, they're uh, giving advice on what you should do with that spare cash. Is there a rule of thumb as this is what you do? Yes, definitely there is. Um, I would encourage people, if they have paid off their car loan, to break the cycle of taking out car leases or sometimes called fleeces uh, by some commentators um, and, and put the money towards a, per, a savings account um, that they can use to then buy a, a new car in a number of years once they've saved up the funds to actually uh, go and do so. Pay cash for that car rather than taking out a lease. It's incredible the amount of interest that's paid and the fees that go into those uh, lease arrangements. Uh, and uh, often the problem is, is that when you go to buy a new car, you haven't got the funds available. So I encourage people down that track or alternatively uh, putting the money against uh, other debt that they uh, have, uh, whether that be the um, family home, uh, mortgage debt or other investment debt, um, <coughs> excuse me, or um, possibly if that's not uh, your scenario, then going ahead and then investing the money and creating some wealth for yourself. So you're putting the repayments towards debt or you're putting it towards a new car loan uh, because cars don't last forever. Eventually, uh, the one you're driving is probably going to wear out or get to a point where uh, you want to trade it in and get uh, a better one, perhaps even a new car, or then move it into some level of investment. So that's going to depend. Everyone's different, uh, different uh, circumstances that people are under. Uh, what about uh, the issues of, uh, you mentioned you know, leasing, uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can buy a car, of course, you can have a bank loan, you could have uh, finance company uh, loans. Uh, is there any better one of those when you're talking about uh, how you pursue buying a car? Uh, yes, I, I encourage people to pay cash if they possibly can. Um, I, the, the next best option is if you do package it through your salary. Um, if, you, if you're not going to pay cash, then that's probably uh, better because you get some tax advantages uh, through doing that. Um, uh, then I guess it's about a personal loan, and, and that's probably the least de- desirable uh, scenario. Uh, you could then also use your mortgage as well. But uh, ideally, you wouldn't actually uh, borrow to invest in assets that go down in value. Uh, that's generally what, uh, from a financial perspective, uh, you would avoid. And it's interesting, when you come across somebody who's in a bit of stress, uh, debt stress, uh, one of the quickest and easiest wins that you can get on the board is to, often there's two cars that are worth twenty to $40,000 each. You can quickly sell those cars, pay down the loans, buy you know, two or $3,000 cars, and um, they've generally taken sort of 500 to to $1,000 off the monthly budget and they've reduced a, a lot of pressure from their, their living circumstances. So it's just a little act of humility there, is not driving uh, the newer, brighter, shinier car, but actually uh, going with something that's a little more second-hand, uh, but the, the payoff is big, isn't it? Yeah, it is very counter-cultural, Neil, uh, to, to drive the older car these days, but um, they, they say that you should drive the car that, that the least, the car of least value that your ego can handle. So um, <laughs> it's, it's definitely well worthwhile doing. I can't recall if I've ever spoken to you about this before, but, uh, but there was one scenario I came across some years ago where, uh, where a friend was paying a very high car loan repayment uh, to drive a nicer car because in church life, uh, there was a sense in which there was a feeling that you should drive a nice car in church life. Now, 
that's got a whole lot of big issues uh, to do with it. What uh, what are your thoughts when it comes to uh, the idea of keeping up with the Joneses and particularly uh, the other cars in the church car park? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting one and um, it's all about the, the concept of um, uh, perceived wealth as well. I often uh, remember going back to my uh, country town upbringing um, there were some particular, you know, older gentlemen around that were driving these really old cars, and uh, you think, man, uh, you know, they mustn't be very uh, wealthy at all. But uh, you'll find actually, um, or found out uh, later, that they're actually very wealthy people, but they just choose to drive, you know, um, old cars uh, that aren't worth very much. I think the the one of the wealthiest men in the world, Warren Buffett, drives. Uh, uh, a car that's of several years old that's just of a standard uh, type vehicle. So I think we need to move away from this whole uh, perception that you need to be driving the flashiest, um, the flashiest car and get down to the basics. It is a mindset thing, isn't it? And uh, I guess if you actually uh, apply your, uh, your biblical foundation, a Christian mindset to the type of car you drive, you probably are more likely to settle on the idea of having a, a more humble car than a, than a flashy one. But as you say, everyone's different and some people perhaps in their profession they might need to drive a flashier car. Yes, exactly. I'm not saying that everybody should drive a, an old car. Uh, I'm just suggesting that if you're going to buy a car, uh, don't go out and borrow a lot of money to do it. But if you can pay cash for it or um, you can structure it well within your particular budget, uh, then I think that's fine. Uh, there's that old thing too, uh, the perception of being blessed because you buy a nice car. Uh, that's <laughs> that's an interesting one to, uh, to uh, pop the lid off on because uh, the blessing of God, not necessarily... Uh, connected with whether you drive a nice car or not. Yeah, exactly. I was in a in a group a number of years ago, and uh, I guess uh, it, as part of that group, we would pray for people's circumstances. And uh, one of the uh, gentlemen in the group said, "Oh, we've been blessed by uh, the bank allowing us to you know take out a car loan so we can buy a better car." And uh, I really struggled with it at the time because I thought, "Oh, is that a blessing to have more debt to go and buy a car that's going to decrease in value?" Um, and I guess for his particular circumstances, it may have needed to um, you know, meet, meet their particular need at the time. But I really struggle with the whole concept of, is that a blessing or, under, or a curse um, <laughs> at that particular time? Well, we've been talking about what you do when you pay off your car. What do you do with that surplus cash flow that used to go towards your car repayments? Now, Gavin, once you've paid off the car, you might have been a, the sort of person who, you know, lives fairly close to the bone, uh, not a lot of spare cash, but all of a sudden you find yourself in the situation where you've got a bit of spare cash. Does that put you in the realm of being a person who perhaps is ready to become an investor? Because sometimes you need that extra spare cash to think about how you might invest. Uh, what is a good definition for an investor? Is it a person who's just got millions or, or are we all investors if we've got a few dollars spare? Yes, I think we're all investors when, you, when it comes down to it. And it's just a, a matter of how much we're going to invest, uh, really. For that person who's a bit close to the bone and has um, created some surplus cash flow because they've paid off their, their car loan, they can start to invest and use that money wisely to achieve what they want to in life. 
Okay, uh, well, let's talk about uh, being an investor. If you did have, and now look, you know, it's going to be different for every car. Let's say your car repayments were somewhere around $100 per week. Uh, that might be high for some, it might be low for others. Uh, maybe if you're coming out of a lease arrangement, the, you could have been paying hundreds of dollars a week. But uh, if you've got that spare $100 a week, what's the best way to look to invest and to grow that level of uh, $100 a week into something substantial? Yes, uh, so we've we've touched on the key to uh, creating wealth here, which is spending less than you earn. We're now spending less than we earn. We've got $100 a week to uh, put aside to invest. Uh, the, the, the key th- we can go back to that, those concepts of paying down any consumer debt and credit cards, car loans, um, other debt. Um, but if we're at the point where now that we want to invest, the first question we need to ask is what structure are we going to invest in? Are we going to invest in um, your own name, a joint name, uh, in a trust, a company in super, um, or through a first home saver account, for example? So the first thing to decide is, what structure will I invest in? Often the simplest with $100 is to invest in your own name in a, in a high-yielding bank account and accumulate um, several thousand dollars and then you can start to think about doing something more interesting. Interesting, uh, the name of your business, and uh, we always make reference to it, it's Cornerstone Wealth. Uh, people come to talk to you because they're interested in uh, structuring the management of their finances so that they can create some level of wealth. Uh, if you've got that spare few dollars uh, to make a start, uh, what do you normally say to people who are, uh, who are you know, not necessarily super wealthy, but they've got to make a start and they've got to uh, change their thinking about the way they deal with money? Yeah, the key is to create that surplus first. And then uh, once they've uh, got to that point in time, uh, I encourage them, particularly if they're a young person, uh, but even if they're a bit late, later in life, um, to start the journey of investing and um, uh, one of the key fundamentals uh, to investing is to to not lose money as your first uh, starting point. Uh, and then the second thing is uh, to um, diversify. So the, the sooner you can uh, balance out your investments across a broad range of investments, um, you reduce risk without necessarily reducing your return. So there are mechanisms uh, when you just have, say, a few thousand dollars to invest where you can in, in, invest in a very diversified way and uh, you know, company, list investment companies are a good way to start like uh, Australian Foundation Investment Company or Argo or there are a lot more um, listed um, um, what we call exchange traded funds which effectively enable you to invest in a very broad range of investments um, uh, you know, across the whole uh, gamut of both Australian and international markets uh, so you can um, Invest through those mechanisms as well to to diversify uh, away some of your risk without foregoing return. A little comment here on uh, companies that are well known, uh, because sometimes there are companies spending a lot of money to uh, become well known. Get they get their their name uh, uh, up in lights, and uh, and we feel more comfortable because we feel like there is a sense in which that's a trustworthy company to invest in, or or uh, you know to put some uh, dollars into uh, for an investment. But there's others. You've mentioned some that perhaps some of us have never heard of before that are less known, but actually have wonderful. Ret- Returns for investors. Yes, you've hit on a really interesting uh, uh, point, Neil. And there was a, well, there is a, a couple of gentlemen, uh, uh, Ken French and Eugene Farmer, who, um, through the Chicago Business School, 
uh, researched where return came from. And you've hit on one of the indicators of return, and one of those is um, being a large stock versus a value. Uh, sorry, a large stock versus a small stock is a big indicator of the level of return. Because if you look at, for example, a BHP, if they go to the bank and borrow some money, um, the bank is going to give them a very favourable rate because they're big and they're well known and they've got uh, credibility. If they go to the corner store. Yeah, so if the corner store goes to the bank and wants to borrow some money, they're small, a little bit more risky, and so the bank is going to charge them a higher uh, rate of interest, and therefore they would that you need to get a higher level of return uh, to make that worthwhile. And so you've hit on the hit the nail on the head. Those companies that we know that we're familiar with, the banks and BHP and Rio, um, Woolworths and West Farmers, all those well-known companies, they're large and they have a more uh, potential stable return, but they're generally lower than the smaller companies as well. So you've hit on one of the indicators of return. So you've got to do some of your own research uh, to find out who is uh, or which are, which companies might give you a better return than the ones that are perhaps well known. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the indicators is how large they are. Um, one of the other indicators is whether they're a value company in a, or, or a, a growth company. Uh, and so the way that you can define that is if you're a value company, the value of your shares, so the number of shares times what the shares worth, so 100 shares, and if they're worth uh, $10, the, 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 um, the, the valuation of that company is, is $1,000. But if the assets that the business holds, whether that's um, uh, plant and equipment, if that's worth roughly the same amount, um, it's a value company. If it's quite different, if the if the assets that the company own is worth, for example, a thousand dollars, but the um, but the shares of the whole company are worth four thousand dollars, that's more likely to be a growth company, and um, and so there's more potential for higher earnings within a value company, but there's higher risk as well. Now, Gavin, where do you go to do some sound research when it comes to how you might invest your few spare dollars? Uh, are there particular places that people can look? Yeah, there's lots of information out there. So if you're wanting to um, get into the nitty-gritty, you know, you can start learning about um, investing by reading a, in a range. There's a plethora of books out there. There's a lot of information available about individual companies and stocks, um, either via you know online traders or um, you can get personal service through through the likes of stockbrokers. But you really need to step back and think: Is this something that I uh, want to do, and is it something that um, I'm going to enjoy putting the time into? And many people do enjoy it. But uh, you just need to understand, are you the personality that's going to um, uh, want to do this over the long term? Because it might be interesting getting into the investing and, and buying some um, investments. Um, but the next question is um, how long you hold them for and when you should sell them. They're probably harder questions than the actual investment at the start. Well, Gavin, it's always good talking. And I should say that the advice we're talking about when it comes to uh, finance and investment is of a general nature. And you should see your personal financial advisor to take your personal details into consideration. Gavin Martin from Cornerstone Wealth. And yes, you can go to Cornerstone Wealth and you can check out those things that Gavin has on offer too. He's not a sponsor of the station. He's been our longtime guest. And Gavin, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us today on 2020. 
Oh, thanks very much, Neil. Great to be with you. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.